Matthew 14, 13 through 21. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Advent simply means coming. The advent of something means it's arriving or arrived. When Christians in the church speak of Advent, however, we're specifically speaking of two things. The first is the period of time that we begin the Sunday. We begin today. It covers four Sundays. The four Sundays that precede the celebration of Christmas, the birth of our Savior. The second, and the one which gives the first significance, is the coming of Christ at the Incarnation. That's the fancy word for the eternal Son of God taking on flesh to live among men. We celebrate the beginning of that incarnation at Christmas. God made flesh. The promised seed that would crush the head of the serpent coming to save his people. Emmanuel. God with us. This probably isn't the text that you were anticipating for Advent. The themes of the next four Sundays in order will be hope, peace, joy, and love. And we'll remain in Matthew in our preparation for the celebration of the birth of our Savior, recognizing that all of God's Word speaks to all of God's people at all times and in all places. And that being known and that being believed, how does encountering these passages at this time of year, as we turn our attention, as we turn our hearts and our minds to the first advent of our Savior, how do these passages in this time, how, how, do, how does this time help us better understand these passages that aren't maybe the typical Christmas passages? Because while they're not the typical Christmas passages, they find their roots in the reality of that first Christmas. That Jesus Christ took on flesh and came and lived and ministered among people. They're not traditional Christmas passages, but in the reality of that first Christmas, we rejoice because without that, without his birth, we wouldn't have his ministry. We wouldn't have the reality of the hope and the peace and the joy, and the love that he has brought and given to whosoever will come. And so hope is where we begin today on our trek through Advent season, and is one of the three abiding things that the Apostle Paul articulated in his conclusion to 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love, these three things abide. 
Hope is present in the text before us today, as we will see. And we look forward to that day when we'll have that hope in full. When that hope will no longer be hope because it'll be before us. Because we don't, once, once you have it, you don't hope for that which is now seen. And that's what lays before the Christian. And that hope is our eternal peace and presence with him in glory. Our Savior is truly God and truly man. Let us rejoice in that reality and the hope that it delivers and receive what he has for us this morning as we prepare to celebrate his first advent and look forward to his second advent. And so we come into this passage that the feeding of the 5,000 may be familiar. Nothing else, it maybe rings a bell. A little boy and his lunch, some bread and some fish, a whole lot of people got fed. But in the context of our passage as we come into it today, we want to take note of what it follows. And, and what we're told here is now when Jesus heard this, and we have to remember what it was it that he heard, and what he just heard in the text, in the context of the passage, is that John the Baptist's disciples had come and told him of Herod's killing of John the Baptist. And it says, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Well, why would he do that? Well, he's probably mourning. Remember, John the Baptist was his cousin. John the Baptist was his forerunner. Jesus had withdrawn to a desolate place by himself, which includes the disciples, because everywhere he went, they went. But upon hearing the news of John the Baptist's demise, he would be less accessible to Herod in its desolate place, but, but likely he goes to grieve the death of his cousin and his forerunner. Perhaps also to wonder before his father if something similar awaited him. Because remember, he grew in wisdom and knowledge and stature. This is the one, this is the one that. When he was born, his father, Zechariah, had prayed in Luke 1.76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Is part of what Jesus withdraws for to wonder about, is this the path that he also prepares for me? What maybe can lead us to perhaps that conclusion is the word that... that that Matthew uses here. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew. And he uses a word here that's related to time. He uses this word kairos. Kronos is a word related to the passage of time. Kairos has more to do with a significant moment, a fullness. So it's now when Jesus heard this, Matthew uses that there. Like he's trying to communicate to us a moment of great significance in the feeding of the 5,000, yes, but also in that death of John the Baptist. It's used elsewhere. It's used in Galatians 4.4 when the Apostle Paul tells us, when the fullness of time had come, time being Kairos, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. What we're preparing to celebrate in that fullness of time, in that most pregnant and fullest of moments. He sent him forth. It's also the word that, that the angel 
who spoke to Zechariah at the promise of John's birth. In Luke 1.20 said, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, in that fullness of time, in that greatest and most significant of moments. It reminds us in the use of that that there is nothing left to chance, that God is at work in all things, and he has all things figured out from beginning to the end. And he brings this about. And so remembering that Jesus is fully man, he goes and he goes to mourn. Perhaps he goes to wonder about you know, how this maybe prepares his path and goes before him. But he also goes and what does he want? He wants to be alone. He wants solitude. That's another thing that reminds us that he was fully man. Because as he's experienced this, what does he want? Anybody here ever want to be alone? Yes. <laughs> and he goes and, and, and he wants to be alone. says that when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But, there's always a but, isn't there? But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. We see ministering in the midst of mourning. Strange as that can be. But it happens. It takes place. Some of us have witnessed it in the last few weeks. The ministry is taking place. Even in the midst of hardship. The crowds heard that he was going. They followed him on foot. They heard it and they followed him. And they actually got to where he would be before he got there, it seems. Jesus wants solitude. And the crowds want what? Him. Him. He was a man, and he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. So you got into a boat with your 12 closest friends, said, we're going to go someplace desolate so we can be alone, and they row up to the shore, and that's a lot of people. What would you do? Row the other way. Let's go back to where that demon-possessed guy was. But he doesn't do that. It says that he got there, and he went ashore. He saw that great crowd, and what does it say that he did? He had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. This one who wants some solitude, he sees them and he responds. But I want you to take a look at the crowd. And I don't know what the crowd said. I don't know if they saw him before he got into the boat, if they were there when he received the news. But what do you do when the Lord comes by? Because at some point they'd heard or seen that he was going, and the Lord was coming by, and what did they do? 
They followed him. They followed him so closely that they arrived where he was going to go before he got there. So what do you do when the Lord comes by? Do you follow him? In his word? He said in his word is life. If you would have life, you need to follow him in his word so that you would have life. Do you follow him in prayer? Because there's likely that as he was going to this desolate place, what do we find Jesus doing on a regular basis? When he goes to a desolate place, it's to do what? Pray. We find him doing that in his last week, right? They went. It wasn't a desolate place, but the twelve went with, the eleven went with him at that point, and he went to pray. He separated himself by a little bit to pray. So it's likely that that's what he's going to do. You follow him in prayer? Whether that be with a group of believers gathered together to pray over whatever whatever things might need prayer? Do you do you do it on your own? Because he modeled it for us. He wants us to, to come to him in these things. In personal interactions. In the various situations that are too many for me to pick. But in all things. Because the truth of who you are in Christ, if indeed you are in Christ, is that you live daily in the Lord's presence. Because he has placed his spirit within you. Therefore, you are in his presence. You are living your life before the face of God. So while we live in the Lord's presence and through, his, and, and through the presence and power of the spirit, let us not take that for granted. And let's follow where he leads, knowing that he leads through his word. He leads through prayer. He leads through personal interactions. And yes, through those various situations. Not to hyper-spiritualize anything, but to know that God has a purpose in every one of those things. But the people, if they saw him, did they see him? And Was his face still sad? He was a man of sorrows and equated with grief. And it seems that this giant crowd wasn't put off by that at this point. They follow him. And we're told that he had compassion upon them. Action motivated by compassion. This is this wonderful truth about God's compassion. God's compassion always leads to what? Action. The children of Israel cried out as they were suffering under slavery in Egypt, and God did what? He was preparing something he heard and he acted. God's compassion always leads to action. Here it's obvious to all who are gathered. He provides. But here's the thing that we have to recognize as well. God's compassion always leads to action, though it may not be seen immediately by us. Because God's going to respond. Daniel. Daniel set his heart to pray. And for 30 days he prays and he sees what? Nothing. And then the messenger of the Lord comes and says, as soon as you started to pray, I was sent. God's compassion was going forward, though Daniel, he might not have felt it, seen it, or recognized anything until that day that he responds. And then he has confirmation. God's compassion was bounding forth every day. And so how does God, how does Jesus show his compassion here? Well, we're told right here that he comes out and he heals their sick. 
He heals those that were sick. We're told in, in Mark and in Luke and in John that he taught them as well. He spoke of the kingdom. We find him doing what the king does, telling people of the kingdom and doing things that the king does. The king was kinging. He was healing. He was teaching. And he's going to feed them. He's going to do what a good king does. But before he gets to that, there's this concerning conundrum that comes up. Because he comes out, he has compassion, he teaches and he heals. And we're told once again that this is a desolate place. It's a wilderness place. And the day is now over. The disciples come and they remind him of this. Because they're good at reminding of the obvious. Hey, this place is kind of out there. And the sun's going down. Okay, thanks, guys. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So there's, there's this reality that sometimes we, we rush to negative judgments on the disciples. There's nothing in here that necessarily indicates that. Because there's a concern if they get too hungry, what's going to happen as they, as they go to get food? They might faint on the way. They might lack strength. And so there is a, there, we, can, we can be a little, little more generous maybe than we are sometimes. Of There's a concern. There's a genuine concern on the part of the disciples. Now the disciples, they, they're taking stock already maybe of what they have. And it's like, hey, there's no way to sustain ourselves out here. We're in a desolate place. The day is done. It's dinner time. Send them away that they might buy food for themselves. They want them to take care of who? Themselves. How many of you are capable of taking care of yourself? Oh, there's some hands that went out. How many of you are capable of taking care of yourself without God providing everything that you need in order to do that? That's a hard truth but it's true truth that God allows us to take credit for providing for ourselves. That's part of God's common grace. And we need to remember that as God's people, everything, that breath that you just took, that blink that you took because your eyes were getting dry. He made you so you could do that. That's part of how he takes care of you. He puts skin on you so we don't walk around with all this exposed nastiness and yuckiness, right? Protect God did that. When we look at that, and, and, but, but there's that reality that, you know, I do need to work. The Bible encourages us to work, to be able to provide for ourselves. Again, our Christian position is that he's made me able to work so that I can provide for myself. And I give him all the glory, honor, and praise for it. The disciples say, go and buy food for themselves. Jesus says, what? He hasn't let the cat out of the bag yet. John tells us that he was testing them. Matthew doesn't say that. He just gives us this. He gives us this real succinct account. Send them away. So they can go in the villages, buy food for themselves. Jesus says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. What? And John tells us, again, that Jesus said it to test him. He knew what he was going to do. 
And so the disciples, I mean, to their credit, it seems that they don't just say there's no way. But they do tend to emphasize the impossibility, if you will, of the situation. It's as though Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And can you see the 12 sitting there, heads together, going, one of them's out looking for this little boy that he'll find. And they come back, okay, Jesus, here's what we got. A little bit. And Jesus, we want to let you know, we mean a little bit. Because the word used here for those five loaves are like small barley loaves. Not big. Not big. And, and they don't continually come to the table. Right? Small little barley loaves. And a couple of small fish. So Jesus, we just want you to know we got a little bit. And it's not even ours, really. And, I mean, it's a great... I mean, we mean great. It's a lot of people, Jesus. Last estimate, 5,000 guys. And they brought their families. I mean, good on the men for doing that, right? We got five loaves and two fish. And he, that is Jesus, said... Bring them here to me. Bring them here to me. It's the statement of hope. Because who are they bringing them to? We have no idea from the text whether they're expecting, oh, we're going to see a big one. He just says, bring them here to me, as common as can be. The question that comes for us there is, who do you entrust with what you have? He's put everything into your hands. Who do you entrust with what you have? No matter how great or small it might be. This is a pittance, especially when you take the, the numbers that are involved. He says, bring them to me. And where do they place them? In his hands. There's a statement of hope. But there's something else interesting in here. He says, bring them here to me. Well, what's he speaking of? Is he talking about the food? Or is he talking about the people? Because the disciples have addressed both. We only have a little bit of food and there's a lot of people. Now I think directly he's speaking of the food. But when we look at what he does is bring them here to me. What's the first thing he mentions? He ordered the crowds to sit down. And so they sit down before him and takes the five loaves. I, I, don't, I don't think we're wrong in, in saying bring them here to me applies to both. Now they're going to take the food to them. And the people have already come, but he's making them comfortable. He's having them sit down. The word there for sit down was recline. That's what you did when you let, sat down to the table in the house to eat the banquet, to eat the feast, to eat the meal. It's the position that they would take later on around a table as Jesus prepared that first communion. 
They reclined at the table. That's the word that's used here. It says, bring them here to me. Most directly, it'd be of the food, for it'll be placed in his hands. But the people would also be brought forth and seated in groups of fifties and hundreds. John tells us directly that this is indicative that Jesus is the greater prophet to come. That was promised back in Deuteronomy. Moses says, there will be one who comes. John makes it real clear. He spells it out in John chapter 6. Matthew doesn't say it here, but as, as he's been laboring this point that he is the one to come, we see this reality that here at work is the greater Moses because what he's about to do is to spread a feast in the wilderness. And he does it so simply. So they're in a desolate place. There's, by some estimates, 10 to 15,000 people that are now set down in groups of 50s and 100s. He says, bring it to me, and they do. And he takes the five loaves and the two fish, and did you notice what he did? He looked up to heaven, and he said a blessing. For what? Five little barley loaves and a couple of fish. But what we need to recognize is that in this culture, this is a familiar scene writ large, a familiar scene to the faithful Jewish families gathered in that place because this is what would take place before every meal. A simple blessing. And what is he doing? He takes this blessing with five loaves and two fish. How had they come? Well, directly they'd come through a little boy's hand. Now, if you have a picture of a solitary little boy sent out into the wilderness all by himself, hey, son, head out by yourself, have a good time, here's your bag lunch, we'll see you when you get home, that's not really how it worked. His family's probably right there. And we have an idea of perhaps the level of the family within the society when it's humble, five little loaves, two little fish. Like most parents... Who would they give the food to? Who's going to eat first? Well, this one, this little one, he's got it, and, and, they, and, and he comes and he gives everything he has to eat. In the hands of these 12 guys who honestly, him giving it directly to Jesus, I really like that picture because I've been around the disciples and kind of like them. Sometimes we're not that great. But those disciples did what they were supposed to. They brought him to Jesus. And Jesus, he takes this, and what does he do with five little loaves and two fish? He acknowledges that those humble things had come through his father's hands. He says a blessing, not to the little boy, the inference is to his father. Yes, Jesus prayed before his meals. And so he says this blessing, and he broke the bread. And as he did so, what did he start to do? He gave it to his disciples to do what? To start to go and serve. Who? All who were gathered there. And they kept serving. And they kept serving. He brings the disciples into the ministry. He brings the disciples into the ministry. In their hands, the disciples feel the proof that a little is enough 
if Jesus makes it so. Because that's all that they had. The disciples wanted the crowd to fend for themselves, but Jesus feeds them all. They didn't provide a thing for themselves. It all came from the hands of Christ, and it was distributed through the hands of his disciples. He brings them into that ministry, and they go, and they continue to do so until when? I mean, look at, look at the wonder of this. They all, it's time for that question. How many is not included in all? All is all. They all ate and were what? Satisfied. And the word for satisfied is not just like, oh, my peckishness has been absolved and now I'm okay. No, they were full. Full. They were so full, they were satisfied. I couldn't eat another bite if I wanted to. And they took up, not just, there wasn't a pittance left over. There were 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. The word for basket there is like a big, heavy container. Oh, my goodness. Look at the ability of Christ. Consider the similarity to another situation. Well, two other situations. One earlier in his life, but another way earlier in the life of Israel. We already alluded to it. The Israelite children are delivered from Egypt and they're into the wilderness and they're out there for a little while and God's done all these amazing things and delivered them. And they get out there and their tummy starts to rumble. It's been three days. Oh, Moses, we're so hungry. That we were only back in Egypt and God does what? He provides them bread. He says, Moses, here's what you're going to do. I got the plan. They're going to go out. They're going to collect this. And here's how much they can collect. Two omers each. A couple of quarts. For each member of their family, they're going to go out. They're going to collect it. They're going to do that every day. On the sixth day, they're going to collect twice as much because on the seventh day, that's the day of rest, they're not, there's not going to be any because they're not going to collect that. I want you to rest. You find your rest in me. But he provided bread in the wilderness. If they don't eat it all, if they try to hoard some, if they try to keep some till the next day, what's going to happen? It's going to get stinky and it's going to have worms. They tested him on this. That's the way it worked out. But there were no what? There were no leftovers. Here the greater Moses in the wilderness, in a desolate place, with 15,000 people, provides an abundance and there's left not there's a ridiculous amount of leftovers and they don't spoil there's no indication that they spoiled at all but they saved them up this is the abundance this is how much greater Christ is than Moses it's a picture of the wonder and the hope of what's at the king's table bring them here to me so there's that reality that it's this is the greater Moses, but there's something else too because we, the ability of Christ, Christ has been in the, in the wilderness before in Matthew. Do you remember? It's back in Matthew 4. He's baptized and God says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And the Spirit drove him out in the wilderness to be what? To be tempted by Satan. What was number one? What did Satan come and say? Hey, I know you're hungry. It's been 40 days, I've been counting. If you're the Son of God, 
turn these stones into bread. Jesus says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What did Jesus do? The last time Jesus was in a desolate place and hunger was specifically mentioned, he refused to make bread out of stones. He refused because he would not abandon his trust in God to provide for himself in the right time, the right place, through the right means. Make no, let there be no doubt in your mind he could have done it. Later on, he's going to tell his disciples, hey, if, if, if I called down 12 legions of angels, they would come. But he didn't. Because he had something to fulfill. He could have. But here's the wonder of this one who is our Savior, the one who calls whosoever will come. He, wouldn't, he who wouldn't satisfy his own hunger in the wilderness provides for the people's hunger abundantly so, so that they're full and lack nothing. And he does so where? In the desolate place. If you're in Christ, where is he going to take you? It's no desolate place. We live in the desolate place right now, and he provides abundantly in the desolate place. And he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if he can provide to a place of complete satisfaction in the desolate place, what awaits the believer? When we come home to be with him, no longer a desolate place, but the place that's populated with all of those who have come. And he has said, come to me, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and we will live in eternity together. What will that abundance be like? He who can satisfy us here has a greater satisfaction yet to come. Hope is there. But don't miss this either. How did he provide it? I would like you all to sit down so I can do an amazing work before you. Behold, five loaves, two small fish. There's no fanfare. There's no attention drawing. He does what every Jewish father would have done before the meal. He simply broke the bread said the blessing, and began to feed those who were gathered before him. He did it in the most common of ways. In, in so many ways, don't, don't you hear, don't you see in this very real event the echo of those parables where he talks about the common and the wonder of the greatness of what comes about through that little mustard seed? Here, through just that simple obedience, no fanfare, no big announcements, just sitting down to a meal, and he provides an abundance that overflows. Leftovers galore. Baskets large, heavy and made heavier by those leftovers. None went without. Interestingly, and some of you maybe know this already, but it's a good reminder. Other than the resurrection, this is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. The scale of the event dazzles. But when we consider how Matthew records it, what's missing? What's the reaction? 
Those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately, and we move on to the next story. There's something weird here. The scale of this event dazzles, but there's a lack of reaction that's kind of puzzling, isn't there? I mean, what have we seen? After a miracle, what do we typically see? The witnesses commonly marvel. They call Jesus a prophet or they praise God. But Matthew records no comment. Now, to their credit, they don't see it, they don't, they, they don't say anything especially foolish. We have a tendency to do that, right? In John, he tells us that they came and tried to make him king by force. So we do know that there was a reaction. But it's interesting that Matthew, he records no comment. And he did that by the inspiration of the Spirit. And when you consider chapters 11 through 13 recorded flawed responses to Jesus, here we see another one, don't we? They misunderstood the miracle. We know that from what we read in John. But in the flow of Matthew's text, it's interesting, we've just read about Herod who killed a prophet who spoke the word of God. Now we have a crowd that eats its fill but says nothing, not even thank you, apparently. Next week, we're going to get to one where the disciples... They confess truly you are the Son of God, but hear nothing. Disciples today say the same thing that, that we're going to read about next week. And we take comfort in the hope that that truth provides. But what he's just done is what the Holy Spirit saw fit to be the only miracle besides the resurrection that's recorded in all four. The abundance of provision. I don't think it's a coincidence. You probably don't either. Because what, what, what is the one other miracle that is so abundantly providing? It pales in, I mean, it, it may, this, this, is, this, this is huge, but that's even bigger. But there's a parallel that runs there. An abundance that overflows. It's provided to whosoever comes. There's hope here. There's hope here. One of the things that we need to remember is to not try and force God's hope into our idea of what hope looks like. That's to remake hope in our image. God's given us hope, and it's Christ, as he's presented in his word. That's hope. He gives us what we need, above all, himself. And that should shape and reform everything we desire, we want, we do. We see the people in Jesus' day, they wanted to take him, to force him to be a king. But here's the thing. What is he already? Born to be king. He was king. Just not in the way that they conceived of a king. And this king, as he came, he came in order to receive his kingdom, and the path to that was through the cross that he would bear and that he would endure. Nothing would divert him from that because that's where the hope comes from. And so we see this and we get to the end of this and we go, well, where's the, where's the, where is the hope here? We've seen glimmers of it. We've got this incarnate Savior 
And there's a line from a mother's song or prayer. Maybe it's in your ears already. He has filled the hungry with good things. It's his mother's prayer. When she goes to visit Elizabeth. It's in Luke 1.53. Read the whole thing this week when you get a chance. But in that prayer, she says, He has filled the hungry with good things. And, 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 and it comes from Psalm 107, 8 and 9. She prayed this as she submitted herself to the revelation and the will of God and was pregnant with Jesus. He has filled the hungry with good things. Notice the tent. Look at, I mean, those, what tense did she use? He has filled. That's past tense. What is she confessing? That as much as he's a reality in my womb right now, this has been done and it will be done. He has filled the hungry with good things. We know that Mary took these things and she pondered them in her heart. Did she ever in her wildest imagination think that he would feed a crowd of 15,000 with five loaves and two fish? But no, here her boy is doing what? Filling the hungry with good things. In John 6, he tells them that the good things aren't the physical bread they ate, but the bread that he's going to provide that doesn't grow old, that doesn't spoil. There's hope. Hope that he has filled the hungry with good things. And because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, he continues to fill the hungry with good things. Have you come to him to receive? So we see in that Christmas song that we remember around this time from Luke 1, the reality that he filled the hungry with good things. But we remember also within this passage that the disciples, what did they want the people to do? To go and what? Buy food for themselves. And maybe there's a question that came into your mind, maybe not, but there was one that wandered into mine that I hadn't thought of before. As the day wore on, Maybe, maybe, maybe it was in a family that had someone healed. Maybe not. As the day wore on, did any leave before it, before the miracle took place? We don't, we don't know. There could have been. And where that gets us is that if there were, what did they not receive of? They might have received healing within their family. They might have heard good teaching, but they didn't stay and they didn't want. They didn't receive the fullness of what he had to offer. They departed to fend for themselves. The ones who were fed were the ones who what? Remained. We live in a world Where so many are trying to fend for themselves. And we're the ones who have received of the sustenance. Whoever remained and received did so to complete satisfaction. That's to shape our desire. That's what we want for all of those that we meet. Perhaps they've come in and go, well, I didn't find what I thought I wanted, and so I'm going to go look somewhere else. We know that. Did we say, well, 
We tried. They showed up and they didn't get it. Did you go out the door after them? Because they won't find what they're looking for. Did you continue to remain if they're a friend or if they're a co-worker? If there's, remember to stay close and live faithfully and speak the truth. Because honestly, I mean, that, I don't know what it does to you, but I'd never had that thought before and it broke my heart as I thought about it. Were there any that left before this took place? I hope not. I don't know. The text doesn't tell me, but we know it's possible. And that wonderful phrase, bring them here to me. Bring them here to me. But notice what he did before in the grand arc. I will go to them because he came. Jesus, his father, sent him that he would bring them, his people, to him. Father, of those you've given me, I have not lost one. His coming involved being made like them in every way except for sin. And do you hear the hymn of hope in this? Bring them here to me. There is no sin that he cannot forgive or will not forgive whosoever will come. And you, if you are a Christian, you are one of those disciples that he's given the bread to, to take, to take out to the world to take out to those who are in need. And you are to bring them here to Him. We must do so now. For there will come a day when those who are not in Him will hear that summons, and it will not be a call of comfort, but a call of impending judgment. We want to go now. So that that call is heard as the call of compassion that it is. He's provided the bread and placed it in our hands to take to those who are around us. Let us not be slack in it. We've partaken of the foretaste of hope today in the elements of communion. Which remind us of what was given up, what he gave for us. His body is the bread that never spoils. His blood is that which cleanses from all unrighteousness, not just for you, not just for me, not just for us, but for, so who, for whosoever will come. And we are to go and call them that they would come. And we've mentioned already many miracles. They kind of function roughly as parables, except the parables, they are instructive fictions, whereas miracles are instructive facts. We see here in a small display of the grandness and greatness of what God provides us in Christ. And we see the reality of who God is. Jesus, he sees human need. He has compassion for humanity. He can meet human needs, even meager resources suffice. Because his arm's not shortened, and in his hands, he can accomplish all things. 
And we as people, having received that abundant feast, should at least thank Jesus for his provision. Not just once, but in every moment, in every day, in every interaction, in every thought, every word. It's where Paul starts talking about give thanks without ceasing, pray without ceasing, those, all those things without ceasing. How do I do that? Well, I seek to cultivate it through the presence of the Spirit. And I imitate the one who saw human need and had the power to do something. And I go forward in his power. That they would hear, bring them here to me. And that they would be provided for. Amen.